This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. So we are walking through the book of Isaiah, and today we come to chapter 25. If you would turn there in your copy of God's Word, Isaiah chapter 25. We're going to talk today about the day when death will die. Isaiah chapter 25, and let's look together at verses 1 through 9. And if you would follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, the day when death will die. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will honor you. The cities of violent nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms and shade from heat. When the breath of the violent is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry land, you will subdue the uproar of barbarians. As the shade of a cloud cools the heat of the day, so he will silence the song of the violent. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Father, we thank you for your word. And right now as we prepare to to dig into it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts that we would behold the, the wonders and the beauty that you have given us in your word. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, through the, through the years, uh, 28 years as a pastor, I participated in a lot of funerals and heard some wonderful things said at funerals, but I've also heard some pretty awful things said at funerals and some things that were well-meaning, but not really biblical. And one of the worst quotes that I have heard is, attributed to an English clergyman named Henry Scott Holland, but this is sometimes read at at funerals, and it's supposed to be the person who has passed away speaking to a loved one who remains behind. It goes like this. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I have only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. 
I am I and you are you and the old life we live so fondly together is untouched, unchanged. What is death but a negligible accident? All is well. Nothing is hurt. Nothing is lost. One brief moment and all will be as it was before. How we shall laugh at the trouble of parting when we meet again. Well, if we're in Christ, we will meet again. <laughs> that much is true. <laughs> but the rest of this quote is really, really bad because it engages in denial. It denies the truth of the savage, cruel break that death brings. And therefore, it rings hollow to people who are grieving. You know, another thing that I've heard well-meaning people say is that death is a normal part of life. But that's not biblical either. <laughs> the Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that death is a normal part of life. The Bible teaches that death is abnormal. God created a world without death. God's original creation did not contain death and the new creation that he will bring about when Christ returns will contain no death. The Bible teaches that death is an enemy. It is an enemy that was defeated at the resurrection of Christ and it is an enemy, praise God, that will be destroyed at the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 25 and 26 tell us about that day. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There is coming a day when death will die. And that's what we're seeing here in, in these words that we read from Isaiah 25. So what's going to happen on that day? First of all, wrongs will be made right. Wrongs will be made right. You know, in this, in this sinful, warped world, fallen world that we're living in, you know, we see a lot of humble, godly people who have it really bad. <laughs> and, and then we see some people who are just, you know, arrogant and prideful who just seem to be doing well and prospering, but that will not always be the case. No. On, on that day, all wrongs are going to be made right. Look at verses 1 and, and 2. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have accomplished wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have turned the city into a pile of rocks, a fortified city into ruins. The fortress of barbarians is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. So the city here that he's talking about is not a geographical place. It is a city that symbolizes human pride and arrogance and evil, God says on that day, it will be taken down. We saw in chapter 2, in verse 11, 
that the pride of mankind will be humbled and human loftiness will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Those who, the, who, who have exalted themselves in this life will be brought low. But there are other people. There are people who have humbled themselves before God, who have, who have walked humbly with their God. And what do we see about them on that day? Verse 4, for you have been a stronghold for the poor person a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms and shade from the heat. These people, instead of relying on their fortifications that they have built or on their financial portfolio, these are people who have fled to God as their stronghold. And God says, I will be their stronghold forever. And he uses two metaphors here in verse 4. God says, I'll be a refuge from storms and shade from heat. So both of these things are things that people who live in the Middle East would really <laughs> understand so clearly. God is a refuge from storms. In the, in the winter, in certain times, uh, in, 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 the, in certain places in the Middle East, uh, when the rains come, the wadis just turn into raging rivers. That happened this past winter in the, the Middle East. And if it happens, and it happens quickly, you better get out of the way. But God says, I'll be your, your refuge from storms. He says, I'll be your shade from heat. In July of last year, I was on the Arabian Peninsula. And let me tell you, at that time of year on the Arabian Peninsula, there is a heat unlike anything that we experience in North America. There is a heat there at that time of year in the middle of the day that just will simply not allow a human being to, to do life, to be outside for any length of time. Just a few moments, and you're just wilting. And there is not a cloud in the sky to, to block the sun. But God says, I'll, I'll be your shade. I'll be your shade from heat. Now, do you know what you have to do to experience God as your refuge from the storm, as your shade from the heat, you just come to him. Just come to him. Jesus invites you to come. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You don't have to have it all together to come to Christ. In fact, the one qualification for coming to Christ is that you have to acknowledge that you don't have it together, that you need him. Dane Ortland has written a wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly. He says this, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. You just come as you are. He'll be your refuge from the storm. He'll be your shade from the heat. And one day all wrongs will be made right. Second, we see here that death will be swallowed up. 
death will be swallowed up. Let's check out verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat. A feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. What's the most wonderful meal that you have ever experienced in your life? The most wonderful food that it was in company with people that you love. Think about that meal. That's just a faint hint of the feast that we will partake in one day. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The great feast of the Lamb that God is preparing for his children. Listen, Jesus is looking forward to that day. Last Sunday we took the Lord's Supper together. What did Jesus say at at the end of the first Lord's Supper to his disciples? Matthew chapter 28 26 and verse 29. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What a day that's going to be. What a feast that's going to be. And you were invited to it. You were invited. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The marriage feast of the Lamb. Listen, we, we sung it earlier, right? And even so come, like a bride waiting for her groom. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the body of Christ. The bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And our groom is coming again, and our groom has prepared a feast unlike any other. Have you responded to the invitation to come to that feast? Let's look at verses 7 and and 8 here in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud. The shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. On February 12, 1884, Theodore Roosevelt was on the floor of the New York State Assembly. He was just in his 20s at that point. And he received a telegram, and it was a happy telegram. It was a telegram informing him that his wife Alice had given birth to a healthy baby girl. But then, not long after that, he received a second telegram. And this telegram was telling him that he needed to rush back to his hometown because his wife had become gravely ill. And so Roosevelt rushed home. He was greeted at the the door of their family home by his brother, Elliot. 
who greeted him with the words, there's a curse on this house. Mother is dying and Alice is dying too. And that night at three o'clock in the morning, Theodore Roosevelt was at his mother's bedside when she passed away. She was only 49 years old. The picture of health, they thought she had a cold. It turned out to be typhoid fever. And she died. And then 12 hours later, in the same house, the love of his life, his wife, Alice, passed away in his arms. The mother of his infant child. Theodore Roosevelt kept a daily diary. And his entry for February 14th, 1884, ironically, Valentine's Day. He just simply put an X and wrote beneath it the words, the light has gone out of my life. Oh, what death brings. The pain of death. The heartbreak that comes from death but it will not always be so. Praise God, it will not always be so. What does he say here again in verses seven and eight? On his mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death, once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. Now, how is that possible? How is that possible? That death will be swallowed up. It's possible because on a mount called Calvary, Jesus took death in himself so that it could be destroyed for us. And it was defeated when he rose from the dead. But listen, the resurrection of Christ is not just a one-off event that happened to him. It's something that's going to happen to all of us who are in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the term first fruits is a harvest term. It was, it was the term that, that signified that the first part of the harvest had come in and the first fruits were the guarantee that the remainder of the harvest was on the way. And Paul is saying here that the resurrection of Jesus is like that for his people. His resurrection is the first fruits and it's the guarantee that all who are in Christ are also going to be raised. And when we are raised on that day when he returns, we will not be raised with perishable bodies like the ones that we have now. Bodies that are subject, you know, to sin and cancer and Alzheimer's and injury and death. There will be none of that. We will be raised with glorified, imperishable bodies. They will be physical, but they will be imperishable. Not subject to sin, suffering, disease, death. 
look, look at this again in verses 7 and 8. I want you to see this. Look at the word swallow. Verse 7, on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud. Verse 8, when he has swallowed up death. So Isaiah here is probably doing something that he enjoys doing, which is mocking the false gods. So there was a myth about Baal that death had swallowed Baal. But Isaiah says that the true and living God swallows death. And Paul almost certainly <laughs> is referring to this in 1 Corinthians 15:54 when he says when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh victory in Jesus my savior forever Look at verse 8 again. He says that the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face. Listen, those of you who know what it's like to grieve, God has seen your tears. God has seen every tear that you've cried. Psalm 56 and verse 8 says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Those sleepless nights when you were tossing about and your pillow was wet with tears. Jesus was there. He's been there through every tear that you've cried. He's been there when you went through the dark night of the soul. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has entered the ultimate darkness on our behalf so that one day all can be light for us and so that every tear can be wiped away. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now until that day, how should we then live? A couple of brief words from chapter 26. First of all, trust in God moment by moment. Trust in God moment by moment. Let's look at chapter 26 and verse 3. This is so beautiful. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. I love that phrase, dependent on you. It, it means a fixed disposition of trust. You will keep, you want your mind at peace? Here's how. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. I like the way the ESV puts this as well. Look at the ESV. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Stayed on you, right? A fixed disposition of trust. But this is the challenge, right? Because we can have a great 
time of prayer. We can have great quiet time, right? And our, we're, our minds are fixed on the Lord, but then we, we can get up and we can start going through the busyness of our lives and we can drift. Now, the challenge in the Christian life is to, is to maintain this, this fixed disposition of trust, this, this constant dependence on the Lord, a mind that stayed, stayed on the Lord, constantly aware of his presence. When things come up, and they will come up, it means that you're, con- you're putting them in his hands. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The trust in God moment by moment. Here's a second word. Live for God's glory and fame. Live for God's glory and fame. So let's look at 26 and verse 8. I love this. Our desire is for your name and renown. Our desire is for your name and renown. In other words, the purpose of our lives is not about our renown. It's about his. It's about him. We want want Christ to be more famous, more glorified, more known, more cherished, more more rejoiced in. Where? Among the nations. Among all the nations. What do we see in chapter 25 and verse 7? On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over what? All the peoples, all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. God has a heart for the world, every tribe and tongue. And he's called us to have his heart. He's called us to be swept up in this drama of redemption that all peoples would know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given given to us to be a part of what you're doing in this world, the drama of redemption. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that you have given us in, in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us a passion for your name, for your renown, that Jesus would be more famous, more exalted, more loved and cherished and rejoiced in by every tribe and tongue. And so, Lord, until the day that you come, may we be on the go, going to people that need Christ, giving so that others can go when we can't, praying, being a part as the body of Christ reaches out together to make disciples who make disciples in our community and around the world. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. 
Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.